do appreciate the presence of each one this evening. Our holiday week is getting off to a, a good start and uh, meeting together and worshiping together. I'm very thankful for uh, the blessings that God's given us. This is the week of Thanksgiving. We've even uh, expressed our gratitude this evening specifically for the blessings God has given. So I'm sure we're all very mindful of that this week, maybe especially more this week than other weeks, although don't know that that ought to be the case. Maybe that simply is the case. But we'll spend some time uh, being thankful for the things God has given us, the material blessings, blessings of family, spiritual blessings, all of those things that tie us together. Well, I want, to, I want you to recall last week on Sunday evening, we talked about some events that take place in the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. So you remember that Paul goes to the city of Philippi and preaches the gospel there, has some success, meets a woman named Lydia and teaches her the gospel, and she becomes a Christian. And then, and then he runs into some opposition. He casts a, a spirit of divination out of a young girl that's being exploited by her master. She's a slave girl, and they're exploiting her for profit. And uh, so Paul casts this spirit of divination out of the girl, and the, the masters who are profiting by her are upset by that, and so they have Paul and Silas arrested. Uh, they're put into the inner prison, their legs are put into the stocks, and they're put into chains, and instead of bemoaning their situation and wondering why God has allowed these unfortunate circumstances to happen to them, they're singing and praying, and the prisoners are listening to them. Well, an earthquake occurs, and no doubt the prison is shaken, and their chains are loosed, and their legs are loose from the stocks. The doors are open, and the jailer assumes that all the prisoners have escaped, and so he draws his own sword to take his life. But about that time, Paul cries out, Stop! Don't, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. And do you remember the question that the jailer asked? You remember, remember the question he asked? That's really what we dealt with in our sermon last week. Remember, he asked, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And we wondered, you know, what did he mean by that question? We suggested we know what he meant from the answer that Paul gave. And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so we know what he meant was, how can my soul be saved from God's wrath? We raised those questions. Saved from what? Saved from God's wrath because of our sin. Well, what must I do to be saved? Now, that, that raises an interesting observation that we didn't really talk about, we didn't address last week. You know, Paul doesn't say, well, you don't need to do anything, my friend. There's nothing for you to do. It's all been done for you. Now, that's the answer that some people might give. What must I do to be saved? Well, there's nothing you can do to to be saved. It's all been done. That's not the answer that Paul gave at all, is it? He tells him what he needs to do. There is something for us to do. He tells him, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your family, you and your household. And so they continued to teach him. They spoke, of the, word. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and they took him at very hour of the night and baptized him, washed, it, washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized he and his household, he brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Well, we, we want to take this a step further. Maybe I should say a step backward tonight. Go to Romans chapter 10. 
Romans chapter 10, we see that there's another element involved in the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Well, Paul tells him, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your family. But go to Romans chapter 10 and we'll see the next installment in the answer to the question. Paul in this particular passage is, is showing that both Jew and Gentile are acceptable to God. And he quotes the passage there in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. Whoever, whether you're Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter what your race is, you call on the name of the Lord and you can be saved. And so let's, let's back up a little bit to verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, that's consistent with what we said last week, isn't it? Whoever believes in Him, whoever calls on Him, believing in Him, calling on Him, whoever believes in Him and appeals to Him for, to save them will, will be saved, will not be disappointed. Then Paul raises a series of questions. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Person, how can he call on the Lord if he doesn't believe in the Lord? If he doesn't believe the Lord is his Savior, how can he call on Him to, to save? How will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? Well, how are you going to believe in Jesus if you've never heard about Jesus? That, that's a logical question, isn't it? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. It's interesting, later on in chapter 15, Paul will talk about how he wants to come to Rome and then have them send him on his way to Spain. And so how are they going to believe unless someone is sent? I want you to send me to go out and preach the gospel. Might be what he's laying a foundation for. He's going to address that a little bit later. In verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then the conclusion, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so, if the answer to the question is, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, okay, we need to back up a little bit because how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing. And so before a person can believe, he's got to hear. Before he can believe and put his trust and his confidence in Christ, he's got to hear about Christ and learn about Christ. And so, Hearing is the first step, we might say, and that produces faith as well. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You have a similar statement, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so... God in His wisdom has arranged things so that we can come to know some things about God without the Word, without being taught. We can learn and deduce certain things about Him. But coming to know God is dependent upon hearing the message preached. 
And so that's how God has chosen to save people. God has chosen to save people when they are taught, when they hear the message, when they're taught by other human beings, and then they come to faith, and then so on. We'll talk about some other things later on. But tonight we want to talk about this idea, faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Now, we've talked about several examples of conversion in the book of Acts. I think I've got one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight examples of conversion in which quite a bit of detail is given in, uh, in, in the conversion of these, these people here. And so in every, in every case, every case, they hear the message taught. Every case. Now let's, let's just review that a little bit. In Acts chapter 2, we know what happens in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes upon the apostles. They begin to speak in other tongues. Verse 11, we hear them, the audience says, we hear them in our own tongues, our own languages, speaking the mighty deeds of God. And then we have, uh, I'm sure, what is a summary of Peter's sermon on that day. He explains what's happening. The Spirit has has filled them. They're speaking other languages. Sounds like a lot of confusion to some of them. And Peter begins to explain. This is what Joel was talking about in Joel chapter 2. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then he begins his sermon in earnest in verse 22. Talks about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's it's, uh, consistent with Scripture. The, the, The Psalms, the 16th Psalm, talks about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we ourselves are witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. We talked about that a little bit this morning. And then even the outpouring of the Holy Spirit suggests the resurrection of Jesus as well. He, he went away and He went away and sent the Spirit upon the apostles. And so He's teaching them the gospel. They're hearing the gospel and they're understanding it. And they cry out, what must we do here in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They They heard that. They're convinced that it's true. And they call out, brethren, what shall we do? And they're told, repent and be baptized. And so you see that they hear the gospel and they believe it. They accept it as true and they believe that it will save them. And so they ask, based on what you've taught us, what do we need to do? You need to repent and be baptized. Acts chapter 8, the next case of conversion that we have some detail about. Philip goes to Samaria and he's preaching the gospel there to the Samaritans. Verse 12 says, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he continued with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. And so, When they had heard, after they had heard the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, they believed it and it led to them being baptized. So hearing the gospel first, that produces faith, a faith that works, a faith that acts. In this case, leads to their baptism. In the same chapter, Acts chapter 8, we have the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And see, I forgot my my last uh, little parentheses there. So just imagine, just draw that in your mind. And so in Acts chapter 8, have the conversion of the Ethiopian. And you remember the story. 
Philip is told, go join yourself to this man's chariot. He goes, he, he gets up in the chariot and he hears the uh, Ethiopian reading from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah as a lamb, uh, as he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shears is silent and so forth. The eunuch answered, uh, please tell me, who does the prophet speak of uh, in saying this, of himself or someone else? And then verse 35, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And so he taught him about Jesus. And, and, and the eunuch is listening to Philip's explanation, no doubt how Isaiah 53 and the life of Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53, explains all those details. And they come to some water, and the eunuch says, well, here's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? And so you know Philip's been talking to him about being baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, just like Acts chapter 2. You see the same kind of thing in Acts chapter 9 and chapter 22 and 26, all of which detail for us the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Look especially at Acts chapter 22 and verse 14, beginning Acts chapter 22. Remember, Ananias is told to go to the home or where Saul is, not to the home of Saul, but go where Saul is, and he's, gonna, he's going to teach him there. And so in verse 14, he said, and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one, to hear an utterance from his mouth, and you'll be a witness for him to all men of what you've seen and heard. And so God wants you to know his will. Again, I'm sure we have a summary of what Ananias told him. No doubt he explained to him exactly what that will was. And so, on that occasion, Acts chapter 9 tells us that Saul, in fact, is baptized as well. Verse 18 of Acts chapter 9, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He got up and was baptized. But you see the order of things, that, that you know, Saul was not saved apart from the teaching of the Word. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, you remember Ananias asked him, What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. His sins were washed away when he was baptized. We might think, well, you know, he was saved on the road to Damascus when he saw the vision. No, his sins were washed away when he was baptized. And he was baptized after the word had been spoken to him, after he was taught. And so you see, you see how that you know, how that plays out. It's not, it's not difficult. And then in Acts chapter 10, we see the conversion of Cornelius as well. And in chapter 11, and Peter is recounting the events that take place at the home of Cornelius. He, he's, he's telling them about his experience. He's, he's reviewing uh, what, uh, had been, what happened to Cornelius, had led to Cornelius sending for Peter. And he says, he reported to us, verse 13, how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send a Joppa, have Simon, who's called Peter, brought here. He will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And so notice that. You might think, well, he was saved when the Spirit came on. Well, no. What the angel told him is, Peter will speak to you words by which you will be saved. And that's what happens. Peter goes to the home of Cornelius and he teaches him about Christ. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, with power, went about doing good, and so forth and so on. He was crucified. He was raised up on the third day and, and so on. And so he teaches him the gospel. 
And at the end of Acts chapter 10, the Spirit does come upon Cornelius and, and his family. And verse 47, Paul, uh, Peter says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Very consistent with what we've seen before. The gospel is taught. The person is convicted. Leads to his being baptized. His sins being washed away. In Acts chapter 16, we find in the conversion of Lydia, there's something very similar. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira was a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was, was listening, listening to Paul teach. She's listening, and, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. When she and her household had been baptized, she urges, come and spend some time with me at my house. Same, same pattern here. The word is taught, person believes it and accepts it, it leads to them being baptized. We've already seen the example of the jailer, although I will bring your attention once again, not only to verse 31 where he's told, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your family. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with those who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized. So the same, same order, isn't it? Same pattern. Person is taught the word, they come to believe, and then that produces this action. This, they're, they're baptized. Acts chapter 18, our final, final example here. Acts chapter 18. I've got, I think I got verse 14 on the screen, but it should be verse 4. So look at that verse, verse 4. Paul goes to the city of synagogue, uh, city of Corinth, and he goes to the synagogue there, and he's reasoning, verse 4 says, in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so he's going there, he's teaching, isn't he? He's teaching them. He's going to the synagogue and he's trying to persuade them. We, we know what he's doing. Acts chapter 17 tells us what he's doing. He's uh, explaining to them. He's reasoning, verse 2, reasoning with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and, and so forth. And so he's teaching them. Well, then we read a little bit later, verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. What happened to that? That's just disappeared. But maybe it's been up there long enough for you to get, to get the point. So how is a person saved? How, what must I do to be saved? That's the question. How is a person saved? Critical question, isn't it? Well, the process isn't difficult. It's not difficult to understand. It's not by a dramatic, ecstatic experience. What these passages suggest is that a person is taught the gospel. He accepts it as true. He believes in it. He puts his trust and confidence in it. And then he obeys it. Now, there's often emotion involved as people are moved by the gospel when they hear it. There's emotion involved. Remember Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter teaches, and the people are cut to the heart. There's, there's emotion involved as people hear the gospel. Or when they obey it. Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Well, his sins had been washed away. And so no wonder he's rejoicing. But the crying out, the, the weeping, the, the, the wailing, the one who experienced spiritual ecstasy. That's just not found in these examples, is it? You hear the gospel taught, 
Someone reasons with you, shows you that Jesus is the Christ. Yes, I'm convinced. I'm going to put my confidence in Christ. I'm going to put my confidence in the gospel. I'm going to give my life to him. Person repents. He's baptized. He goes on his way rejoicing. You see, it's the gospel that go, that's God's power to save. The, the gospel. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. It's the gospel. When you hear the gospel, accept it and believe it and commit to it, well then, a person, that's how a person is saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we saw this a moment ago. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. It was God's good pleasure that through the foolishness of the message preached. Because it's foolish because it centers upon the cross. It's foolish to many people that the Savior would be the victim of crucifixion. A Jewish man who's victim of, a, of crucifixion, how can, that's foolishness. And so, but that's the message by which people are saved when they believe it. Look at another passage, James chapter 1 and verse 21. Putting aside all filthiness, all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. The word, the implanted word. So you teach the word, you accept it, it it's planted into your heart, and you respond to it. It's through the word, through the preaching and teaching of the word. That a person is saved. In fact, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 22. It says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again. So notice that. You've been born again. And not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Born again by the Word of God. <laughs> and so that's, we, sometimes people wonder, how, how, how is a person born again? And we're looking for an, some sort of out-of-body ecstatic experience. Were the people on Pentecost born again? Yeah, yeah, they, they sure were. Well, what happened? They heard the gospel. They accepted it. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Lord. I'm going to commit my life to Him. And I'm going to start afresh. <laughs> Saul of Tarsus born again. Yeah, yeah, same way. How about the people in Corinth or Samaria? Yeah, same way. Hear the gospel. Understand it. It's true. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to commit to it. And my life is going to begin again. Born again by the Word of God. All right. During the time we've got left, I'll just want to, there we go. We've got, got a few observations to make. First of all, Talk about being born again by the gospel, or the gospel is God's power to save. We usually define the gospel as the good news, and then there's good reason for that. You know, just the, the Greek word is a compound word, the word for good, and the word for message. And so the good message, the good news, that's how we define the gospel. But you know, in one sense, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. You know why? Because it informs us that we're guilty of sin and we're alienated from God. Now, that's the bad news. <laughs> Every one of us here who is uh, accountable before God is guilty of sin and alienated from God. 
The Bible teaches us that sin is a transgression of God's law. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. We talked about that recently. God says, don't do this, and we do it. We transgress God's law, we become guilty of sin. He says, do this, and we don't do it. Same thing. Uh, the Bible also tells us that um, sin is knowing to do good and not doing it. And so we know the morally right thing, we know what we ought to do, and we just fail. Sin of omission. It's doing what our conscience tells us not to do, Romans 14 and verse 23. And so we can sin in word and thought and deed. We've talked about that recently. Don't need to go over that again. But no one alive today is without sin. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. I thought about Ephesians chapter 2 in this regard as well. In verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the son of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too we all. You know, see that word all? We all. We formerly lived in lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We, we all. <laughs> so there he's talking about Jew and Gentile. You are guilty of sin, and we all are guilty. All of us are guilty of sin. And as a result of that, we're alienated from God. Our sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. It makes us worthy of God's wrath. Romans 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is poured out on all unrighteousness. And Habakkuk 1 verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve of evil. And so our sin separates us from God. You know, that's, that's a critical point. That's part of the gospel, isn't it? That's, that's the bad news. You're guilty of sin and you're separated from God. And that's a critical point. I think there are some people who are never convicted of their sin. They, they never come to grips with that. <laughs> they think, now I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as all that. Come on, I haven't really done anything. I, I wouldn't call myself evil or wicked. Now, I may, may not be perfect, but you know, I, I know I'm at least as good as those hypocrites in the church. They just never come to grips, never come face to face with their own sin and see the unholy nature of their sin they, they believe the lies of Satan. Satan told Eve, oh, you won't, you won't die. God, God just wants to keep you from being like him. You know? Oh, you're not all that bad. You haven't done anything really wicked, done anything really evil. Well, that's, that's a lie, isn't it? We fail to see sometimes that, as we said this morning, it's my sin that sent Jesus to the cross. It's my sin that drove the nails in his hands and in his feet. It's my sin that placed the crown of thorns on his head. We, we fail to see that. And so we never respond. And so this is the bad news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel, of course, is that Jesus died to atone for your sin and for my sin so that we might be forgiven and turn God's wrath away from us. And so Christ died on the cross to turn God's wrath against my sin to turn that away from me. Until we hear the bad news of the gospel, we've not really heard it at all, have we? Until we hear the bad news, until we come to grips with that, we really haven't, haven't heard it at all. No wonder in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, they're cut to the heart. 
We have those oh no moments sometimes. <laughs> oh no, what have I done? Well, that, that must have been an oh no moment for them. You know, you, you've crucified both the one who's both Lord and Christ. Oh no, what have we done? What, what do we do now? Well, here's what you need to do. You believe on Him, repent and be baptized, and so forth. And so, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. So we, we have to come to grips with that. If the gospel is going to save us, we have to accept that, and, and then we can act upon it. The second thing we want to draw out is, you know, hearing the gospel involves understanding and obeying. You know, so sometimes people come to church for years. They hear hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons and Bible classes, and they never really hear the gospel. Oh, they have an auditory experience, you know. The sound waves created from the vocal apparatus of the speaker, you know, the sound waves strike against the hearing apparatus in the audience, and they have an auditory experience. They never hear the gospel. They never hear it. They never understand it. And certainly they don't obey it. They remain unmoved. We've been studying the book of Isaiah, and you might, might remember in Isaiah chapter 6, who will go for us? Who will I send? Who will we? So forth. Here am I, send me. Go tell the people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. And so what God is telling Isaiah is you're going to deal with people. Now they have an auditory experience when you talk to them. They're really not listening. They don't hear. Jesus quoted three or four times in the New Testament. Jesus dealt with people like that. Oh, oh, they had an auditory experience, but they never did hear it. Uh, Paul deals with that. We, we deal with that as well sometimes. Let's not be like them. We need to listen, understand, apply. Hearing in the Bible, when the Bible talks about hearing, it involves understanding, not only Listen, not only just hearing the words, but, but coming to an understanding of what's being said. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 23, Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower. He says, The one on whom seed was sown on the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He hears it and understands it. We can understand the word. If we're listening with intent, if we're listening with a will to understand, a will to make the appropriate application, we, we can do that. We, we can accomplish that. But hearing also involves obeying. Here's a, little, here's a little Greek exercise for you. The Greek word for hear is akuo. Akuo. You know what the Greek word for obey is? Hoop akuo. <laughs> Say very similar words. Not exactly the same, but, but really the, kind of the same foundation for both words. Vine in his dictionary defines Hoop akuo, to obey as to, to listen, attend, and so to submit to, to obey. The Dictionary of New Testament Theology, the entry for obey is found within the discussion of hear. And so if you want to know in their, in their discussion, if you want to know what does it mean to obey, you've got to look up the word hear. <laughs> because the two are so closely related. Hearing in the New Testament involves understanding 
and obeying. Not to hear, not to listen, means to disobey or not to respond with action. And so in Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, if he doesn't hear you, or he might have heard your words, but you see, he's not responding, he's not acting on them. Hearing involves a response. It it involves action, it involves obedience. And so the person approved by God hears and obeys. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 17. The person approved by God hears and does. Matthew 7 and verse 24. I think I miscited that passage just a moment ago. The person approved by God hears and does. Matthew 7 and verse 24. Hears and keeps. Luke chapter 11 and verse 28. Hears and follows. John chapter 10 verse 26. Hears and does. James chapter 1 and verse 22. And so, hearing, if we're going to hear the gospel, we're going to really hear it. and We're going to understand it, and that's going to produce some action. It's going to produce a response. That's, That's Bible hearing. A third thing we'll draw out is the gospel has the power to change lives. Why are we teaching the gospel? The gospel has the power to change our lives. Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God uh, unto salvation. And we've noted 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21 a couple of times tonight, but look at verse 18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The message of the cross is the power of God to change lives. The life of Saul of Tarsus is a good example of that. We talked about him at some length this morning, so we won't repeat all of that. But you remember the description we found in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. (laughs) But he becomes an advocate for the gospel. Well, what changed him? Well, he saw the resurrected Jesus. It's the power of the gospel. The gospel changed his life. And so the gospel has the power to change. Another good Bible example is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul talks about their former lifestyle as well in verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were sanctified, you were justified, and uh, you were, let's see, uh, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of our God. This is what you were. You heard the gospel and believed it, committed to it, and those things are in the past. Now you're born again and you're beginning to live a new life. Maybe you know somebody who's a completely different person now. A drastic change in his life or her life because of the gospel. It may be that you're sitting here tonight dissatisfied with the way your life is going. You know, I know I need to do better. I need to change my life. Well, the gospel will change your life if you accept it and live by it. And so the gospel has the power. That's why we're preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel. It's the power to change lives. And then finally, if... Faith is what saves a person, and a 
you know, faith comes by hearing, then people need to hear the gospel, don't they? Right? We need to be getting the gospel out. We need to be telling others about the gospel. Of course, Jesus chose 12 men, especially commissioned them to go out and preach the gospel, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Great Commission, preaching the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's Mark's account of that. And so these men went out, these 12 men went out and started preaching the gospel and, of course, had tremendous effect. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, the disciples that left Rome, uh, Jerusalem as a result of the persecution um, that was instigated because of Stephen's preaching, went everywhere preaching the Word, except the apostles. And so the apostles on this occasion stay in Jerusalem. It's the other disciples who are spread out. They leave Jerusalem, and what do they do? Ordinary Christians, ordinary men and women go out, and they're preaching the Word. They're teaching. Take some, uh, maybe uh, as an example, uh, Paul's experience in Acts chapter 17, in verse 17, he's in the city of Athens. And the uh, Scriptures tell us that in the marketplace every day he was teaching those who happened to be present. Go down to the marketplace where the people are, and he's trying to teach people the gospel. In Acts chapter 20, he reviews or you know, looks back over his experience in Athens, how he said, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Think about Paul as a public speaker. He goes, he get a group of people are gathered there, and he stands up and teaches them, but he goes sit down at somebody's kitchen table as well, publicly and, and from house to house. And so we, we, we need to be doing those things, don't we? we? We need to be trying to reach the lost with the gospel. And so if you know someone who needs to hear, maybe a friend or a family member or neighbor or co-worker, well then, we need to tell them. Who's going who's gonna to tell them if you don't tell them? Or me, you know, people I know. Who, who's going to tell them if I don't tell them? And, and we can develop a sophisticated program of outreach and all of that. That's, that's great. I'm not knocking all that. But the most effective way to reach people with the gospel is you and me, we talk to the people that we know. We, we talk to our friends. Now, those are people that we have influence over. And, and you talk to them. And maybe it just starts with a little invitation. Well, hey, won't you come to worship with me? Hey, won't you come to our gospel meeting? Just a simple invitation. Or, you know, we're going to have a Bible study in our home. I, I'd like for you to come and sit down and, and let's, let's study the Scriptures together. It's that, that personal, the, the personal association and attachment. That's where we have the influence. And then... We bring them in. We teach them the gospel. They hear it. They understand it. They accept it. And they respond to it. Well, we'll finish with this question. Are you, are you saved? Are you saved? How, how do you know? How, how do you know that you're saved? Is it based on feeling? Well, I, I, feel, I feel it. I've, you know, <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes based on feeling. I bought a few cars feeling that they were going to be great cars and in a little while find out differently. You know, feelings can be deceptive. Here's what you want to be able to do. I know I'm saved because this is what the Bible says that I need to do. See, I can read it right here. And I can read this right here and I, and, and I did that. I did exactly that. 
And so, see, my, my confidence is based on God's Word. Not based on a subjective feeling. Those can be awfully misleading. I know I'm saved because I, I can read it right here, and that's what I did. Now, that's your confidence is in the Word, isn't it? And so, we hope that everyone here will hear the message of the gospel, will believe it, and then do what you need to do to be saved. Repent and be baptized is what they're told on the day of Pentecost. And we'll take up that in the next lesson. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you'll open our ears, every one of us, that you'll open our ears so that we might hear the truth of the gospel, that we can hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to understand that we have sinned, that we've transgressed your will, that we've alienated ourselves from you. Help us to see that. Help us to understand the gravity of that, the seriousness of that. Father, help us also to see what you have done for us to bring us back into fellowship with you. You gave your son Jesus on the cross to atone for our sins. And that, Father, is the good news of the gospel. Help us to hear that message, to understand it and accept it, and to respond to it. Put our faith in the saving message of Christ, and then obey the terms of the gospel to repent and be baptized. And then help us, Father, to live a life of faith, a faithful life, following in the steps of Christ each day. Father, we pray for that understanding, for that insight, for that strength and courage to make the necessary commitment. We're so thankful, Father, for what you've done for us. We're thankful that you sent your Son into the world to atone for our sin and show us the way. And open our eyes and open our ears that we might see his example and follow it. We pray these things in his name. Amen.